Let's thank these guys for playing for us this morning once again. Thank you guys so much. So if you're new this week and you're just joining us for the first time this week, we started a, new, a brand new series about two weeks ago on relationships. And this is going to be a 10 or 11 week uh, series. And at the end of the series, we're going to do a Q&A panel discussion led by some of our leaders. And uh, the way we're going to do this is you guys have to text in questions, though, for this to actually work. But here's a little snafu. Is technology ever easy? No, it is not. Who said yes? You're very naive. Very naive. Um, but technology is never easy. So we had this plan. Uh, I was going to try to find a way for you guys to text in just a very simple number from your phones and then um, make it very s- seamless. But apparently, the ones that are the easiest cost like $500. And so we tried to go free. And then when you go free, you, you kind of get what you pay for. So um, we had this as our plan. So if you're going to text a question in today, what we, what we discovered is that you have to text in the TBC Overflow word as one word message that will enroll you into the little system deal for the day, all right? Not for like from now till kingdom come. So um, if you have a question today, type TBC Overflow um, first and send it to that number up on the screen and then type your question. If you have a question tomorrow, type TBC Overflow first as one message and then type your question after that, okay? Does this make sense to you? Um, we're going to try to find an easier way to make this happen in the coming weeks, but I apologize for the complexity of that. And uh, just a quick little show of hands, though. I'll do a, a survey just in the room. Um, has anyone actually asked a question yet of the survey machine? Anyone? Raise your hand. Man, you guys are teeming with in- inquisition, right? And so many, so many questions. So my, my hope is that during the series, you'll have some questions that will um, rise to the surface, and you won't have those dealt with in the... Um, in the, the Q&A panel discussion. You know, several years ago, the questions I got from the students were, eh, so-so. So I made up my own questions anyway, right? So um, don't make us do that again. That wasn't a good solution. But, uh, but get those questions into us. These could be generic questions about big picture stuff or even personal questions, stuff you're going through right now. So uh, I want to ask you some questions. I want to ask you a question this morning. I want to get some response here. If I were to do a street survey and I asked people, what is the purpose of marriage? What kinds of responses do you think I would get? Just don't, don't think Christian. Think just regular person on the street, maybe not a Christian. What kinds of responses do you think we would get? Yes. Just for the money. Okay, so you might get some of that, yeah. Uh, someone else. What is the purpose of marriage? What's that? To make me happy. Someone else. What else? Okay, show someone that you love someone, right? Uh, what else? Children. Okay? So another way of saying that is like sex, right? So some might say that. That's the purpose of marriage, right? We're going to cover all our bases today, okay? So, um, so some might say uh, happiness. Somebody said, you mentioned like companionship. Um, so I think... I think you might hear a lot of people say something like happiness and companionship. This is the purpose. The, the, the purpose of marriage is happiness and companionship. And I'm not trying to, de- to demean those two ideas, happiness and companionship. In fact, if you look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we see, go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. Genesis 2, 18. God looks at Adam and sees that he is alone. And he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. 
And I will, I can attest to this as a man that it is usually not good for a man to be alone. All right, ladies, do you agree with this? Men, do you agree with this? It is almost never a good thing for a man to be alone. So if my wife, um, when you're single as a guy, I was married at the age of 26. So up to that point, I had to be pretty independent. I had to make my own food. I had to like clean the house. I had to do all these things um, by myself. But then when you get married, it's as if you forget these things. And so when my wife, um, I've gotten so out of the habit of doing certain things that when she goes out of town, I am a lost puppy. I really am. So if my kids, they're like, Daddy, what's for dinner? I'm like, okay, here's some Cheetos and Twinkies. Eat these. This is your dinner. And, uh, and so, so men, usually alone and man is not a good combination. And so God sees the man is alone and he gives him a helper. But the word helper, for anybody who's a chauvinist in the room, the word helper does not mean what you think it means. If you're a dude and you have some issues, this word does not mean cook, clean, and make babies. It's not what the word helper means in this passage. In fact, if you look at the, the biblical word, is actually ezer, E-Z-E-R. That word is also used of God himself in other parts of Scripture. All right? So girls... That is your drop-the-mic moment right there, all right, if a guy tries to hold this verse over your head. So the word helper, it's much more profound than what you might think it is. In fact, it gives the picture of someone being strong where someone else is weak. This is why in marriage you often see where one person is strong, the other person might be weak. I see this in my own marriage. I'll give you an example. So my wife... She has this emotional energy that I do not possess. So at the end of the day, you know, you bathe your kids, you feed your kids, and parents in the room can attest to this, that just putting your kids, getting your small kids ready for bed is just exhausting. Like, you don't think of it as exhausting, but it just wears you out. It's, you're trying to stuff food in their mouth, like, eat this, hurry up, hurry up, get in the bath, and you're washing your kids, and then it's time to go to bed, and of course, um, bedtime for kids takes about a half hour because you have to, you need to tuck them in, you need to read to them, you need to, of course, pray with them and all those good things, but there's something in it as a man that I just feel like my wife has this emotional energy that I don't possess most of the time. So my wife, if she's the one putting them to bed, it's, hey, mom, can, we, can you read us some stories? And she'll get like five children's books, and she'll bust those things out, and they'll get in the bed. They'll prop up against her. And my wife has an acting background. So she is getting into character. She is imitating voices. She's creating characters as she goes along. And I can hear them down the hallway like she's acting out these books as she reads these things to them. Right? And she'll go through all five books. And the kids thank her. She prays for them. And they're put to bed. But whenever they ask that question of me, Daddy, can you read to us? And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And I will get one, the thinnest book I can find, and I'll start reading this book. And I, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm in the laying down position, I will get on page three and just fall asleep. There is something about reading out loud to my kids. It's like as the words are coming out of my mouth, the force is departing from me. And I just feel exhausted. I just feel like I want to sleep. And so there's a difference where my wife is strong, I'm often weak, 
And I won't get into like the stuff that Courtney's weak at. I don't want to do that today. But um, this is where I'm weak and where she may be strong. So when the Bible has this word of mine, helper, it's talking about how the woman is given to the man to compliment him. And by that, I don't mean give him compliments, but I mean she's, re- she's really made to complete him, to use the cliche, you complete me, right? So she's given to him as a completion of the man to be a helper suitable for him. And yes, companionship and friendship can be part of this, and happiness can be a fruit of that, but these are great advantages of marriage, but they are not the primary purpose of marriage. But imagine if I did a survey on the purpose of marriage. I think most would probably say happiness. Well, the point of marriage is to be happy. In fact, we've mentioned eHarmony a couple times in this series. Do you know eHarmony has 29 areas of compatibility? That you take a test, and there's 29 areas. They're looking at your profile and someone else's profile, and they try to match you up based on 29 areas of compatibility. I'm pretty sure my wife and I are not compatible in any of those 29 areas, you know? So this is what I think most people want. They want, I want to find someone who's so compatible to me, there's just such little friction, and we're going to be happy for the rest of our lives. And this is how we tend to view the purpose of marriage. So I think people, we take these tests, want as little friction as possible, we want to find happiness. But the issue is, nowhere in the Bible do you see the purpose of marriage being talked about as just sheer earthly happiness. There's no verse for that. And so the question we're trying to raise today is, what is the purpose of marriage? Why did God design it? Think about this for a moment. What if there was no marriage? In fact, what if there were no genders? What if there was not male, female? What if there was just one kind of person, whatever you would call it? We'll just call it it, right? There was no male, no female. There was no gender. It was just it. And you, everyone reproduced, like everyone reproduced. Everyone just by yourself, asexually like cells, you just, everyone just had a baby in their tummy, doesn't matter who you were, because um, we're all it's. And, and everyone just gave birth at some point when you reach a certain age to a being, okay? So imagine this for a minute. I know it sounds weird and just off the wall, but just follow with me on this. Um, this sounds crazy for us to imagine this, but imagine how much simpler things would be if this were the case. Imagine this. There would be no awkward promposals, none of that. There would be no relationship drama. Imagine how more simple your life would be at school if there was no relationship drama. Tomorrow, just gone. It's all gone. There's no hurt feelings. There's no expensive weddings. I mean, seriously, 25 grand is a starting point for a lot of weddings today. No expensive weddings. No fights between mom and dad. No costly divorces. No fighting over who gets to see the kids what weekend. Do you, do you see how much simpler our world might be if there was just no gender? 
no marriage. And so we're raising the question today, why in the world would God think of such a thing as marriage? Why would God design this thing that has caused so much turmoil and friction in the world that you and I live in? I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to start in verse, we're going to summarize verses 23 to 28. Then we're going to get into a couple of verses, 29 and 30. Look at Matthew 28. We'll summarize verse 23. So here's the situation. There are these people named the Sadducees which are not like the Pharisees. Pharisees are religious leaders for Israel. Sadducees are more like civil leaders for Israel. And the Sadducees are people who do not believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in a coming resurrection where where believers become resurrected and joined with God. They don't believe in a resurrection. So do you guys know the, the goofy little joke to remember that? Do you remember that joke about the Sadducees? The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. That's why they are sad, you see, okay? So if you don't know that, that'll, you know, imprint it into your memory forever and ever and ever. Now, they believe there's no resurrection, so they come to Jesus and present to Christ a dilemma. They say, if there's a woman who's married and her husband dies and then she remarries, then who is she married to after the resurrection? And the point of them asking the question is to stumble, make Jesus stumble because they're trying to prove that the idea of a resurrection seems foolish because if someone's married to someone in this life, that person dies, they get remarried, well then who, if there's a resurrection, well then who are they married to in the resurrection? And they're thinking to themselves, we've got, we've got Jesus cornered on this one. And then Jesus says um, in verse 29, look at his response. He says, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So I love this passage because it shows us Jesus is just so blunt sometimes, isn't he? The first response he gives is, you are wrong. This does not match up with the description that most of us have in our minds of nice, pleasant Jesus who walks around with a baby lamb named Cuddles, right? Like we, we picture Jesus in our, image, in our minds as this nice, pleasant, sweet, you know, person who maybe, he'll, maybe he would say it like, you know, come on, guys. I mean, let's think real, really seriously about this. Now, he just comes out and says, you're wrong, right? And Jesus had a lot of drop-the-mic moments with people that he would talk to. Or I guess they didn't have microphones back then, so maybe he would just drop the lamb, like when he would say. He'd make a good point and it'd be like, bam, and like walk away. You know, I'm not sure how that would work. But We talked about this in week one. We talked about how marriage is temporary. Marriage is not permanent. It's a temporary arrangement, and it's meant to point to something else. We discussed this in week one. And I told you that when we enter into the presence of Christ for eternity, 
I will not be married to Courtney. And that sounds sad to me, at least in the here and now. But I know what God has for us there must be so much grander and better that I won't think much about that. But I have no idea how this is going to work. I don't know if, if um, it, will I know her? Will she know me? If we are entering into the, if both of us are standing in line at the all-you-can-eat brisket buffet, because there will be one of those there, I'm sure of it, will she remember me? Will I wink at her and, and be like, remember, remember? Like how, I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know how it's going to work. But according to Christ, it's going to be different. It's going to look different. He says there's no, there's no marriage in the way that you know it today. And the reason for that is marriage is temporary. It's not permanent because marriage is meant to point beyond itself. Writer J.D. Greer says, marriage is not ultimate. It is a sign and shadow of a higher reality. Marriage points beyond itself. This is why it's temporary. It's not permanent. So the question becomes, what does it point to? I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 31 and 32. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And so what is the mystery he's talking about? Look on to the next phrase. He says, And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So right in this passage, you have a summary of this big, grand, transcendent picture of what marriage is meant to be. The purpose of marriage is in this verse. The mystery of marriage is that marriage gives us a picture of Christ and the church. And this is profound. This will change. If you get this one point today, this will change everything about how you view relationships. It will change everything about how you do relationships. It will change everything, how you pass on the purpose of this to your kids eventually. If marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ and his church, it also means this is what I talk about. Whenever I'm, I'm doing counseling with, before they get married, like premarital counseling with couples before they get married, or if I do a wedding, um, this theme that I just gave to you is throughout everything. It's throughout all of my counseling. It is throughout the wedding ceremony itself because you cannot escape that this is the ultimate big picture purpose for marriage. It's meant to paint a picture of Christ and his church. And here's why this matters. Because marriage is given to the world to show the world what God is like. Do you understand this? Evangelism is not just about you going and telling someone the spiritual laws of salvation and how Christ died on the cross for their, their sins. That's really, really important. But marriage itself, marriage itself is meant to emanate, to project into the world a picture, a profound picture of Jesus Christ and his church. You didn't know that your marriage was meant to be evangelistic, did you? You thought it was to make you happy. You thought it was to make your life more meaningful. Give you some friend, give you a good friend, give you a companion. Something to tide you over until 
we get to the presence of Christ one day. No. Marriage is meant to be evangelistic. It's meant to show the world who God is and what God is like. And so you might say it like this. If you and I fail to see the true purpose of marriage, then marriage itself will fail. In every divorce, one if not both parties forgot this truth. One if not both parties forgot the truth that marriage is meant to paint a picture of Christ and His church. In every single divorce throughout history, one of the two, if not both, they have forgotten this one truth. And so if you and I forget the purpose of marriage, marriage itself will fail. In every divorce, someone forgot this truth. And I want to just, I want to be sensitive as I say this, but this is why God says, in his scriptures, he says, it says God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Now, I'm not saying for a minute that if your parents have gone through that, or if if you've experienced that, that you should hate your parents, or that you should hate either one of them individually. I'm not saying that today. But I think that you and I need to hate divorce too. If God hates divorce, then we need to hate divorce. And you can love your mom and your dad just as strong, just as powerfully as you did before. And you can still believe and feel deep in your bones, that divorce is wrong, divorce is always bad, and divorce is something that God hates and we should hate it too. Now listen, I know there are tough situations where someone had to get out. I understand. I'm not saying the person was wrong to get out. I'm not saying that, but I'm just trying to point out the brokenness that God still hates the brokenness that caused that situation. So you and I have to, I think, hate divorce in the way that God hates divorce because it, it, it damages the image that God's trying to portray to the world. And that's this picture of Christ and his church. And so the question becomes, how is marriage like Christ's relationship to the church? I want you to go back a few verses. Look back at verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now listen, before you freak out over this verse, this word submit is a controversial word today, but this does not mean that one gender is superior and one gender is inferior. It's not what it means. It doesn't mean a woman has to obey a man like a child. It does not mean that women have to submit to every man in the world. That's not what it means. All right, we're going to explain what this means. This verse has been abused by many over the centuries. Gary discussed this this morning in the main service. So here's what this means. Some writers define submission like this. To defer ultimate leadership to the husband for the health and harmonious working of the marriage relationship. 
But again, when most of us think of the word leadership, we have a wrong view of leadership in our culture today. We picture leadership today as, let me sit down and do what I want to do while you do what I tell you I want you to do. That's not leadership. And if somebody's trying to convince you that's leadership, that is a warped view of what leadership is meant to be. Here's what leadership is about in the home. It's about spiritual responsibility. So for the young men in here that aspire to be married, if Jesus, here's what it looks like. If Jesus came to the door of your house and wanted to speak to someone about the state of your family, he would ask for you. This means he's placing the mantle of leadership on your shoulders as a man. You see, this is where this whole picture comes from. So for any guy out there who says, you know, see, look at this verse. This verse says, you know, you're supposed to submit to me. Well, let's, let's read on. Let's look down at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So for any man holding submission over a woman's head or over his wife's head, just, just read one more verse. Read verse 25, and you get a picture of the man's role, because it doesn't look like the kind of overbearing, dominant leadership that many men have believed in and ascribed to and tried to convince women that they are second class. That is not the point that Paul's making here. And so what I always say in the wedding ceremony is I say something like, I say, so listen, If the man gets his part right, spiritual leadership, responsibility for the family, then what is the woman submitting to? Well, she gets to submit to the kind of love that Jesus had for his church. That's powerful. She gets to submit to that kind of love and care and unconditional love in that relationship. And, and so people always ask the question. They always ask, you know, what's the secret to a great marriage? You want to know the secret? Here's the secret. Look at this quote. Here's the secret. The gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. When God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. The gospel and marriage, they play off one another. They, they explain each other. The gospel explains Marriage and marriage explains the gospel. The marriage shows the world what God is like. In fact, let's apply this in life now. So in, in marriage, sometimes you're the forgiven person. You're the one that receives forgiveness. Other times, you're the one who forgives. You're the one who gives it out. But no matter which role you play in any situation, you always learn the gospel in a deeper way. The gospel becomes real to you in those situations. As I'm sinned against and have to forgive, I'm reminded of how Christ forgave me. As my wife sins against me and I have to forgive her, she's reminded of the gospel. I'm reminded of the gospel in those situations as well. In fact, I'll tell you, I want to show you just how complicated marriage can be sometimes. 
So a few years back, we live on a really steep hill, and there's a driveway that's really steep in, in front of my garage, and I used to always park on the street, just to make things simple, and my wife would park in the garage, in the big suburban, and so a few times, I would park in the driveway just behind the garage door, garage door shut, and a few times, she'd walk out, open the garage door, and see my car parked there, and she'd be like, Dave, can you stop parking behind me, please? I'm going to run into you by accident if you keep parking. Because you do it sometimes, but not all the time. Most of the time, you're in the street. And I, I always was, my comeback would always be like, well, you need to look before you back up. Right? That's logical. And I always try to play the animal card because my wife loves animals. So I would say things like, you know, I mean, what if there's a squirrel behind your car? You don't want to run over it, do you? Right? And I'd play that card, and she'd kind of get a little bit huffy with me, and we'd kind of go back and forth. And so this went on for a little while, and I most of the time would park on the street, though. But this one Wednesday night, um, I was just tired, and I just thought, you know what? I don't feel like lugging all my stuff up the driveway, up that steep hill. I'm going to park in the – I'm leaving tomorrow morning pretty early to go to work, so I'm just going to go ahead and park behind her. I'll, I'll be gone before she gets up anyway. So that was the plan. So I park in the, in the driveway right behind the garage door where she's about to back out the next morning. So next morning comes, and something changed with our plans, and for some reason, I did not leave the house when I thought I was going to leave. And now she's going to go to the gym and work out. And I'm at the, at the desk with my coffee, about to begin studying for Sunday morning stuff, and I hear the garage door begin to open. And I just thought, oh no, I'm parked behind her, all right? I got to catch her before she backs into me. I'm running as fast as I can through the house to get to the door that opens up into the garage. And as I get to the door, I hear it. I hear this, right? And I am like, oh, no, she just hit my car. She just ran into the, into the front of my car with her car, right? And so if, 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 you could have, if we could have recorded the conversation that ensued after that situation, but on both of our ends, she gets out of the car. I mean, she has warned me a hundred times, if you park behind me at some point, I'm probably going to run into your car, right? And I've said to her, well, you need to, I've had my little comeback. But she and I, we just went after each other, and I'm sitting there. If, if the neighbors had seen this, they would have probably called the cops. There was no physical, nothing physical. It was just yelling and screaming like, how could you hit my car? It's like, it's huge. How could you miss it, you know? And, and she's like, well, why did you park behind me? And we're just going back and forth, back and forth. And then we calm down. And the worst part is when you realize we got to pay two deductibles now, right? That's the worst part. It's like insult. I'm just going to leave. It's an old car. I don't really care. I'm just going to leave the dent just to remind you not to do it again, you know? And so this is what happened um, several years ago. And we calmed down. We, we learned the error of our ways. And I learned a very important lesson in that situation, and it was this, that marriage can be really complicated. Because if I did a survey in the room, half you guys would say, Dave, you were at fault. Half you guys would say, uh, that Courtney's at fault. It'd probably split male, female, 50-50, right? That's what would happen. You both would have a point. But here's my point. Marriage can be complicated, and you have to be quick to forgive. You've got to let the gospel 
play out in your marriage and realize, you know what, I was wrong. I'm going to own it. I'm not going to blame like Adam and Eve did. I'm going to own it, and we're going to move on. And she does the same thing. I do the same thing. And we let the gospel impact our marriage and our relationship so that God, the world can see a picture of who God is. And so the gospel has to be um, active and working itself out in the marriage because marriage can be complex. It can be complicated. We've got to be quick to forgive. When you get married, the gospel is no longer just an idea. But you get to experience the reality of the gospel every single week. There's always something. There's always something. And so if marriage is given to us to point beyond itself, here's my fear. Listen. If marriage is given to us to point beyond itself, here's my fear. You and I get so caught up in the sign and the shadow that's marriage, we miss out what it's pointing to. Listen. Whenever I do a relationship series, I can feel that you lean in. You're like, I want to hear about this. This is important. This is boy-girl stuff. And you get all like, oh. I mean, I've met students in here that said, my mom saw that y'all are having a relationship series, so she told me, come to the Outback and, and hear what they have to say about all that. And I know that it's always a series where our numbers are the biggest, that you're, you're, you're tuned in, you're alert, you're leaning in more now than you normally do. I mean, the rest of the year, we just talk about, like, us and God. You know, unimportant stuff. But this, I mean, marriage, relationships, it's important stuff. Like, I want to hear about this. I don't want to mess up my life. And so you lean in more on this topic, and I understand that because it's, it's, it's more present in the here and now. But here's my fear. is so you get so caught up and excited about the sign and the symbol and the shadow that you miss what it's pointing towards. So this would be like, how many of you guys have been to the Grand Canyon? A few of you have been to the Grand Canyon. So imagine if your parents set out in a car to go to the Grand Canyon, and you're all excited to see a big hole in the ground, and you get to the Grand Canyon, and there's the sign entering the park, and you get out and you take your, your family photo, and your dad's like, Look at this. This is incredible. Look at this beautiful sign. And, and you take a family photo in front of this. You're getting all kinds of angles and stuff. Then you get back in the car, and Dad does a U-turn and starts driving all the way back to Texas. And you're like, Dad, what, what are you doing? This is, this is not what we thought we were going to do. We just took a picture of that. Why did we come here all this way? And the reality is this little sign is meant to point to something so much bigger than the sign itself. It's meant to point to this. It's something, whoa, look at those pretty colors. It's meant to point to something so much bigger than itself, and yet this is what many of us do. We get so wrapped up in the little sign that God is saying is supposed to point to something so much bigger than, than the sign itself that we just miss out on the real thing he wants to introduce us to, which is his relationship to Christ and the church. Something so much bigger 
We said in week one that marriage is temporary. The church is eternal. We said marriage is temporary. We said marriage is meant to point beyond itself something so much bigger than itself, and it is a deeper reality than the sign itself. And you, yet you and I get so wrapped up in the sign. And I think it's a, it's a foolish mistake. And so God is using this thing called marriage to teach us about himself. So here's the purpose of marriage in two quick points. To make God known. The purpose of marriage is to make God known in the world today. Your marriage is meant to be evangelistic in its nature. To proclaim who God is. Not just in your words, but in your life and in your actions. Next week, you're going to hear the second part of this, which is marriage is meant to make you holy. It's meant to sanctify you, to grow you spiritually. And so Mrs. Ron Slavin will cover that topic next week. So if you get married, it's going to be the primary tool that God uses to grow you in your walk with him. I heard an analogy recently in a book that I read, and the author said, I want you to imagine an old bridge over a stream. And I want you to picture that there are structural defects in that bridge, but they're hard to see. You can't really see them with the naked eye, but they're there. And there might be hairline fractures throughout the bridge, but with your eyes, you can't see anything. Now, if we drive a 10-ton truck over that bridge, what's going to happen? You're going to begin to see the flaws. You're going to begin to see these hairline fractures will become even bigger because of the weight that's on this bridge. So the pressure from the truck is going to open these cracks so they can be seen, and suddenly we, we can now see all the flaws of the bridge. Now, did the truck create the weaknesses in the bridge? No, they just exposed the weaknesses of the bridge. And this is exactly what marriage does for you and I. It doesn't create weakness, it reveals weakness. In fact, I mentioned to you last week how my dad, um, I love my dad, love my mom, but they've had a pretty rough marriage throughout my life. Never any abuse, physically, nothing like that. It might pale in comparison to what some of you guys have had to go through. But it's just not a healthy marriage. And my dad said to me, one time he said to me, I just don't think I should have ever gotten married. Because it's just, it's just really hard. And I think my father entered into marriage thinking, you marry someone just to be happy, to have a companion. He didn't realize that when you get married, you're like a, you're like a weak bridge that has some hairline fractures. And when you get married, it's like the 10-ton truck has been driven across the bridge. And it's going to now reveal weakness. My dad thinks that marriage created weakness. No, it didn't. It just revealed it. It just showed it. And so, if you enter into marriage with the mindset that it is not to sanctify you and to make you holy and to change you, then you've got the purpose of marriage all wrong. You know, Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and if you walk down the aisles of the store, you will see all kinds of, like, really tame images for love. Don't, you see the cards, they're all... There's all these, like, sentimental images for love and marriage in our culture. I mean, hearts. It's not even like a real heart. It's like a shape. It's not even like the real shape of a heart, right? Real hearts are kind of, like, gross looking. But it's a little heart. It's 
baby angels with wings. I mean, the color pink, right? It's just these really tame images for what love and marriage are supposed to be. But I think you and I could use some new images for love and marriage. Like maybe a hammer and a chisel. Well, that's really what marriage is like. Maybe like ironing, sharpening iron. Maybe some friction. Maybe some sparks. That'd be more accurate as to what marriage is like. I want to close out with this quote by uh, Keller in The Meaning of Marriage. He says this, Love without truth is just sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in, in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and to repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. You'll hear more about that next week. So go ahead and discuss your your questions at your tables.